0: Welcome to STEAM Pod, where I have conversations with women in STEAM to learn a bit about what they do and who they are. I'm your host, Michelle Ong. My guest today is Associate Professor Rhea Liang. Rhea is a general surgeon with a specialisation in breast surgery who also works in the area of surgical education. Join us as we talk about her journey as a surgeon, the Operating with Respect program, and her interest in manual crafts. Thank you for joining me today, Raya. It's fantastic to have you on. And yeah, looking forward to learning a bit more about all that you do in medicine. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's get going. Um, How did you find yourself in medicine or what drew you to med? It, it is sort of like the default option in my family. So I am a fourth
1: generation doctor. So I'd grown up in a household where my father in, uh, I grew up in New Zealand. And so my father is a pediatrician of some renown Um he has in his professional life been awarded you know order of the new zealand what is it the officer of the new zealand order of merit which is the equivalent of an obe so so those are pretty big footsteps to follow but before him even there was my grandfather who's, who was a physiologist um and not just the direct line but you know you, you grew up in a family with lots of great aunts and uncles and um you know you know it's just peppered with um, medical people so it's very natural because um something I noticed for the medical students when they start medical school and start learning the language, it's like a completely different language. It's like learning... You know french or something because there's so much terminology but i didn't have that barrier because i'd grown up hearing about it um and reading about it too you know my father had bookshelves full of um, medical textbooks because in the pre-internet era if you didn't actually have it on the bookshelf at home (laughs) you had to make a trip into the library and if your local medical school library didn't have it then you had to order it um so so we had a very extensive medical library um at home and I think I remember as a 13 or 14-year-old already starting to pull them off the shelf and reading through them with quite some interest. Um, And so you have a sort of baseline level of knowledge that makes it feel very comfortable as you go into medicine. Um, And so I don't feel that I overcame any barriers. I I just fell into what was done in our family in that regard. (laughs) Um, But we hadn't had a surgeon in the family for two generations. That was one thing that occasionally came up in family conversation. (laughs) <laughs> just the
0: missing gap in the yeah lots and lots of
1: physicians <laughs> of various specialties but and um, I think we had um, a distant great-aunt or uncle who was an obstetrician but um, other than that no surgical specialties for a couple of generations
0: wow so was there any particular area that you wanted to get into when you decided you wanted to explore surgery No, not at all. Because surgery was a
1: late decision for me. So a lot of people make the decision to go into surgery at medical school. um, And I'd watch them with some admiration, you know, thinking, gosh, you know, they're very ballsy and bold, uh, but I couldn't do it. You know, training's too long. You have to stand for such long hours, um, you know, be hungry. Um, And of course, that thing that's said very often to women, you know, it's it's very hard to balance with your family. And so when I graduated, I actually wanted to be a GP. Um, But, you know, as you started to get a little bit more proficient as a junior doctor, the surgical specialties—I mean, um, the wonderful surgeons um, in a little town called rotorua in New Zealand—you know, the bosses there started saying, "You know, you've got you've got really good hands. You pick up these skills really quickly, and we think you'd make a good surgeon." And um, for a good oh, year and a half, I think I I kind of just dismissed that and thought, "Nah, I I, I like." the idea of the lifestyle of the GP. I love chatting to people. I have an innate curiosity in what they do. I'd love the variety. Um, I'd love the flexible hours. Um, and so it, it was an idea that grew on me quite slowly. And I felt I started on the back foot because a lot of my colleagues had put a lot of work into it. You know, people were off doing PhDs, research projects, finding their networks. They had mentors. Um, but once I kind of got my head around it and about PGY3, um I went into it and although my hands are tiny, so then they're almost non-standard size. So I wear um five and a half size gloves, which in most hospitals <laughs> in most hospitals I work at, I you actually have to tell them to order those gloves and they won't have them on the shelf. Um, they're not wow. standard supply. Um this was really challenging during my training because every six months you're at a different hospital, yeah. so I'd ring ahead a month or two in advance. So please get <laughs> these on the shelf because I'm gonna need them when I arrive. Anyway, and so so I, I loved little fiddly work. Um, ear, nose and throat was gorgeous. Pediatric surgery operating on tiny wee babies was gorgeous. Um, but in the end, it was the sheer variety in general surgery that drew me in. Um, so from one operation to the next, you can go from sort of one end of the body to the other, really, in general surgery. And um, and then as I got more into general surgery, the breast specialties um, appealed to me because in the, you know, I'm talking about the sort of early 2000s, breast specialty was a rapidly emerging field. Um, the specialist aspects of um, oncoplastic surgery and not just controlling the cancer, but also thinking about how we gave women back something that was beautiful and functional, um, so not just treating it as a purely physical thing to, to get the cancer out and get good margins on it, but also to think about how you planned that so that it looked, um, you know, acceptable and functioned well as a breast afterwards um, was, was you know, it was just personally appealing to me as a woman.
0: Um, yeah, and that's, yeah, that's again, like getting into your operating with respecting it's. It's a big part, like when you're actually working in that area, because, you know, it's a part of who they are and it's a part of their image, mental and physical going forward after they have to have those kinds of surgeries. Yeah, it is.
1: Um, And and so the operate with respect thing, now that you've mentioned it, I mean, I don't know if viewers will be aware, but, you know, it's not just a tagline. Um, Operate with respect is a multi-million dollar Um, well-resourced, well-supported initiative within the College of Surgeons that was born out of a very distressing event. Um, So there was a Sentinel event in 2015 um, where there was a, you know, a a, a trainee was propositioned basically by her boss um, and she declined. um, But the upshot of that was that there were negative repercussions on her future career because of the power differential now the college you know took the time to survey its fellows and its trainees and its imgs to see how prevalent this behavior was and we were totally blown away by the results so not only did we do quantitative work but we did qualitative work as well. And the stories just poured in. And the amazing thing for me was it wasn't just the juniors. It wasn't just the trainees. We had quite senior surgeons writing in about how they'd always been damaged by the experiences that had, you know, so, you know, know, humiliation, bullying, intimidation, and, of course, the sexualized aspect. Um, So this caused, you know, a great upswell on the support for addressing this type of behavior Um, and operating with respect is a um, one of eight initiatives um, covered by a large plan called building respect Um, but the part that i chair so i chair the operating with respect education committee um, is to deliver training to the whole fellowship about how to change this culture um, and we started off with an online module, which now more than 99.9% of the fellowship have completed. So the only ones that are still to complete it are those who are just newly becoming fellows. They have, When you become a fellow of the college, you've got six months to complete that online module. So we're fairly well complete. And that was something that people said couldn't be done. They said you'll never deliver mandatory training, partly because you'll have a small nugget of people who don't believe it's important. It can't be made to do the module because they're so senior that they're almost untouchable. And the prediction was that those would be the entrenched bullies or the entrenched harassers who were often in very powerful positions. But the thing is, we've always portrayed it as an educative thing, not a punitive thing. You know, it was like, surely this is something that we should all be aware of. You know, surely we all care for the safety of our patients and that our patients should feel safe. Surely we um, believe the educational literature that supports, you know, teaching people in ways that don't in, involve, um, intimidation and humiliation, you know, because we abandoned all that in primary and secondary schools, you know, a good 30 years ago, so it shouldn't be in surgery anymore, so so that's the kind of approach we have, it's not been, you know, if you don't do this, we shall, you know, we, we do actually, yeah, we do actually have some quite significant sanctions, you know, tucked away for those who, uh, persistently you know um, behaving disrespectfully but from the point of view of delivering the training is it's been as an educative thing Um, so getting to 99% took only kind of two or three years and people said it it could never be done anyway so phase two is the face-to-face training so we've developed now a face-to-face training workshop which takes a day Um, simulation based so they do role plays Um, And it's mandatory for the leadership groups, so um, the executive, the boards, the board, you know, the committee chairs, um, the directors of all the courses that the college delivers for training. Um, So that's about 600 or 700 surgeons um, are mandated to do that face-to-face workshop. It is a little bit on hold at the moment because of coronavirus. You know, we can't expect people to actually travel to a workshop interstate because a lot of the interstate borders are closed but we hope to have that reopened soon enough once covid settles Um, and the idea of that is we've got about seven thousand surgeons all up active uh, between australia and new zealand so we think that if we train about 700 of them in you know how to manage and how to address it then you'll have sort of sufficient critical mass in most places to really get all rolling into action so the online module was about knowledge and the Shop is about action, getting people to actually speak up and do
0: something about it when they see it. Yeah. So internationally, how how's this being received?
1: Really well, because you know, everyone has the same issues. And so there are equivalent moves. So the College of Surgeons, america So the American College of Surgeons um have got now what's their one called? Uh Times Up Healthcare. Um as in time's up, time for us to sort this out. Yeah. yeah. yeah and the British ones are all on the variations of something it out. So it started off with hammer it out, cut it out. Uh, I can't remember what the ONG people called it. hope it's not push it out. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, each specialty had their own. So hammer it out is the orthopedic one and, and cut it out is the general surgeon's one. And you know, there's a bunch of hashtags you'll see around about those things. They've got a move from the physicians in the UK called civility save Lots, uh yeah civility saves lives which is very similar yeah so it's not just surgical colleges but other colleges too so so we're all starting to talk to each other and look at each other's resources but college of surgeons australasian um, has by far the largest volume of resources because we've just thrown so much money and so much sort of person power at it um and our resources are very well delivered because we've beaten all the bugs out of it through delivering the
0: modules and courses
1: repeatedly you know it's quite mature material
0: it's brilliant has there been a lot of difficulty in getting people to get on board with those kinds of ideas because you know, it's not to say that media is accurate but the stereotype of the jerk you know top 1 percentile of your medical profession being bullies and you know laying into trainees and patients and nurses and all that that that's a thing that you see all the time in the media yeah so the fact that, you know, it, it took this one event to trigger all of it off. Like you'd you would expect a bit more resistance. Yeah.
1: We are to blame a little bit ourselves, but also media as well, you know, commonly as we're presented on TV and other things, you know, the surgeon is, it, it's a lazy stereotype, you know, it's very convenient <laughs> to have the surgeon as the badly behaved, loud, bully, you know, who just write, writes roughshod over everything. Um, But we're working on changing that. And so that's the external perception of us, but internally as well, you know, we we are guilty ourselves to a little degree, you know, um, there have been conversations, you know, where people have literally bragged about getting one over on the ED consultant or, yeah, yeah, no, I didn't accept that patient, you know, not my problem sort of thing, you know, and that those are the sorts of conversations where we have to start calling it out and going, well, actually, let's focus, refocus on the patient what actually was the best outcome for the patient and could we have helped facilitate that rather than seeing this as an us-against-them thing, you know, getting it away from um, an adversarial approach to a team-based collaborative approach. Um, So it's not, you know, people think that this is um, an attempt to um, cut down the power of surgeons or to diminish their knowledge, Um, and I'm saying, no, that's not at all it. Um, we should still have the ability to decide when a patient needs to go to theatre and do the things we need to do. But I'm just saying, you know, there is not the need to push other people down to achieve those things. And it works better if we're all facing the same direction, which should be towards the patient, you know, to get the best outcome. So so that's one aspect. And then the other thing we're very big on in Operate With Respect is this idea that you can't address disrespect with more disrespect. So we know from sociological research that those who are abused most often become abusers. You know, we've seen it with domestic violence. We've seen it with sexual abuse. We've seen it with child abuse. Um, And, you know, I get a little bit distressed when I see the commentary where um, people will say, you know, hashtags like don't be a dick or um, people saying, oh, they're a bastard or whatever, you know, you're like, well, to the degree that we are pushing back against behaviors that include name calling and stereotyping, then for us to try and address it by name calling and stereotyping isn't going to, you know, we have to be better than that. Um, We have to take the higher road. Um, So, and, and I understand it totally as a human reaction. You know, it's totally human when you have been badly treated or disrespected yourself to feel like you want to push back. But we have to somehow find the grace and the maturity to not do that. Um, And hopefully our juniors, as they come through, will see my generation. I I think I'm sort of mid-Korean now. (laughs) Um, You know, hopefully the juniors coming through will see my generation start to model those behaviors and internalize it as the new normal. Yeah, because because all of it is learned behavior.
0: It's not that they intend to go out that way. It's just that they see it. It's normalized. So they continue it. Yeah, yeah that's it. Um, I mean,
1: getting back to your original question, yes, there, there has been a lot of pushback. And so everyone who works in this field, myself, my committee members, other people who are advocates have sometimes found themselves silenced um, or repercussions from, you know, vexatious complaints or, you know, the quiet word from the head of the department saying, please don't make so much trouble, <laughs> you know, trouble. Um, <laughs> but, you know, we, we should push on, you know, I believe in the higher ideal. Um, And I have noticed that although there were some very vocal objections to it, you know, people used to literally stand up in conferences back in 2015 when we first launched it and say in front of a group of people all nodding in agreement, you know, um, this threatens the foundations of surgery and um, our patients are going to suffer if we can't get trainees who are robust enough to take the sorts of behaviors that we put up with, you know. Um, that, that they would literally say that in public. I find that although we still get that said in private now, people have, at least in social settings and public settings, realised that that is not an acceptable narrative anymore. You know, that just, that that feeling that, you know, we did it and look how well we turned out is not a good justification. You know, the same arguments had been made about things like corporal punishment in schools um, um, or very punitive, you know, the old... Um, jail system, you know, was an idea to punish people until they somehow magically became good. (laughs) You know, you know, we've moved away from that in in so many systems in our society that that there's not, um, you know, it becomes increasingly untenable to hold on to it in surgery. Yeah, we can't can't punish people or put them under aversive conditions until they somehow magically become better. That's not how it works. I, I mean, we definitely need stamina. You do need stamina. You've got to be able to stand for long hours. You don't always get to sleep or eat when you feel like it. You know, those are things like um, sports people trained for. But the bullying and intimidation, harassment, um, you know, the negative comments, snide remarks, um, being dressed down in public, you know, none of that helps anything. There's so much literature to show that that decreases learning, decreases situational awareness, makes the whole situation unsafe. And it's not just for the person, for the recipient of that behaviour, but everyone else in the room. So lots of Um, you know, behavioral research showing that people who witness those events are also silenced. You know, people come to understand that they should not speak up. And we've got very good evidence coming out in the literature now that that increases patient error and decreases patient safety so that complications, not just surgical complications in the operating room, but medical complications on the ward as well. You know, the rates of pneumonia go up um, when there are incidents
0: of unacceptable behavior by surgeons. Oh, that's interesting. Is that... um... So is that due to the psychological stress?
1: Yeah, you can only speculate as to the reasons why that might be. But, you know, those of us, I think, rather sadly, I think all of us have experienced, you know, even if not in surgery, we've all experienced a workplace that was like that. Um, And you remember what it's like to just clock in, clock out, keep your head down, not speak up and try and just do what you are asked to do. You know, the minimum you could get away with. Yeah. Um, And so innovation is stifled. People taking the initiative is stifled. People speaking up and thinking of better ways to do things is stifled. Um, And all of that adds up to poorer outcomes for the patients.
0: And has that uh, training reflected in those kinds of performance indicators in the clinics and hospitals?
1: Well, we're waiting for that. So one thing that we do know is that culture change takes a long time. A long time. And so there's something in behavioural change research known as the two generation rule. So if you think about things like, um, you know, now that in Australia it's, you know, people don't smoke in public places, they just don't. And um, people put on their seatbelts when they get into cars, they just do. Um, but, you know, it takes two generations. So there's a first generation who did it the other way, so who smoked in public or never wore seatbelts in cars, who with regular encouragement and reminding, um, will learn to do it on a conscious level. You know, all those ads about, you know, make it click or, um, you know, there is no smoking in restaurants anymore and all those ones about lung cancer. You know, you know it, you can do it on a conscious level. That's the first generation. The second generation is, is, you know, the younger generation. They grow up in an environment where their parents or their seniors, the people who came before, are doing that consciously. And so for them, it just becomes an unconscious habit. And so the same thing with surgery, you know, um, my generation, the middle generation will behave respectfully and if we think about it consciously and keep reflecting about how we're coming across. Um, we know from the original prevalence survey done in 2015 that half, so 49% of my generation experienced bullying, harassment, intimidation. So this is a very, very common experience um, and it's been normalized. Um If we can all work together to behave consciously in these ways, then hopefully the younger generation will come through um, with the implicit assumption that people just behave respectfully in surgery. You know, um, the stereotype of the surgeon in society, of course, will take even longer to change because there's so much media out there with, you know, bold, brash, rude surgeons um, that, that that stereotype will take a long time to go. But but. You know, so, so these things take time. So as to evidence about whether we're making an impact, um, the original operate with respect program was had built-in eva- evaluation time points. And the first evaluation happened last year, a very large piece of work involving both quantitative and qualitative surveys, as well as a textual analysis of all the policies and procedures and, um, you know, it posters, adverts, communications, tweets, everything, you know, all the text that's come out in relation to the building respect thing were analysed. Um, huge piece of research work. And it was very gratifying. So, um, compared to the early days when we had a lot of pushback, we now have very strong support amongst the fellowship, amongst trainees, um, amongst international medical graduates, in excess of 90% for all of those groups. Um, so, we have the support of the fellowship. Um, as to whether it's making a difference, you know, we have got qualitative quotes um, from people saying, you know, I put in a complaint in 2014, it didn't go anywhere. So that was pre-launch. Um, I put in another complaint this year, which was 2019, um, and it was quite swiftly acted on. And so, you know, I can see the change. And, and that's very gratifying to know that you're making a change on the front line, you know, at the ground level. Yeah, um, because, you know, all of us know from working in organisations, that regardless of the policies that are in place, you know they'll often say zero tolerance for this, you know zero tolerance. For that. Yes, but what actually happens <laughs> on the ground may be a different matter. So to hear stories on the ground at the front line that things are changing is very gratifying. As to actual numbers, well, you know that will take time um, because it takes a long time for behaviour to change, and then it'll take even longer for the effects of that behaviour change to come through. But at the very start, with my diversity and inclusion hat on. I would (laughs) like to see that the decrease in discrimination um, would, you know, very shortly start to result in an increase in representation of, you know, um, women of LGBT, of people from metro and rural settings, of people from lower socioeconomic backgrounds or those who are in the first in their families to go to university, Um, you, you know, a whole range of diversity that we don't currently have in the surgical fellowship.
0: Yeah, that's brilliant. Uh, just being able to get more people into those areas where, you know, we, we do actually need specialists and professionals in those fields anyway, because, you know, we're, we're always short on good medical staff.
1: Yes, yes. You just need more more diversity of viewpoints in the room. As I've gone round, I found, you know, people seem to like to paint surgeons sometimes as, you know, uncaring psychopaths, you know, and... <laughs> I have actually met a few of them, but they are very much in the minority. You know, people who know that they're wrong but actually don't care. They literally turn up, you know, in the morning wanting to inflict pain and suffering on people. But vast majority <laughs> of people I've met are not like that. You know, they do care. It's just that they have a particular up- upbringing and a background, and they don't understand how they're coming across. So things like, you know, um, a complaint received um from a young mother. Um, to a surgeon, the young mother, um, the surgeon had made some throwaway comment about how well she was doing with how little she had. And she felt very offended because she is from low socioeconomic. She understood that she was coming to the consultation, you know, looking a little bit disheveled, but she's doing the best that she can with what she's got. Um, But she found it very upsetting. And then he wrote her a prescription for a drug that is arguably the best treatment for her condition, but for which she could not afford. Um, and she didn't fill the script. And then she went back to the follow-up, and he, um, I I don't know quite what was said, but she felt that she was told off for not filling that script and that she wasn't given alternatives. Um, You know, and when you talk to the surgeon, they actually had very good intentions. You know, they really wanted, honestly wanted the best for her, and they meant the original comment about how well she was doing in a very kindly way. But it was just that dynamic where they're older, um, they're male, they're well, clearly well off, and it just came across as patronizing and a little bit patriarchal. Yeah. And then the second consultation where they said, you know, why didn't you fill that script in? You know, that surgeon actually thought that they'd said it kindly to say, you know, why honestly, why, why didn't you fill it in? But her reaction, which was just to clam up and be silent because she felt shamed, they, they found that quite perplexing. You, you know, and so it was just that mismatch of communication. And I think if you had more surgeons who came from that sort of background or who could talk about how hard it is to afford a prescription fee, even of $30, um, when you're on the pension, you know, um, then those conversations, you know, people who would just be be more aware of different viewpoints and the diversity of Australians um, and how those comments come across, um, you know. Um, and I'm learning in that space as well. You know, since doing diversity work, I've become so much more aware of things. I cringe when I think of some of the things I've said in the back, you know, in the past, which might not have come across the right way because I simply wasn't aware. But we're not aware because we don't want to be aware. We're aware simply because those people aren't in the room.
0: Yes. You know, they're not in the room. Because you only you only learn and experience what you've learned and experienced. So you, if you can't gain the broader experience of the people and the, backgrounds that you're not familiar with, you don't realise what is or isn't appropriate or could be misconstrued in a negative way. That's it. And so,
1: you know, as an example, you know, I am, of course, an advocate for Indigenous representation. You know, I grew up in New Zealand where um, Maori representation has been several steps ahead of Indigenous representation. Um, So it was quite striking when I came to Australia. It was like taking a step back in time, thinking, gosh, you know, um, they could do with some more Indigenous empowerment here. I mean, that's not to say that New Zealand has it all sorted, of course, but just to say, you know, we can can progress this a bit. Um, But for for years I've been abbreviating it to ATSI, you know, ATSI, Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander. Um, And it was only recently that someone pointed out to me that the actual Indigenous people here find that abbreviation quite offensive. Um, And I'm just horrified. And the only reason I hadn't known was because we've not, in surgical circles, had enough Indigenous representation. And when we have, they've clearly not been empowered enough to speak up. You know, when you think about, because we've only got two surgeons with Indigenous background, often the Indigenous representation is a community representative or someone from an Indigenous advocacy group. But can you imagine how intimidating it is to be sat in a room with a group of surgeons? You know, they might not feel, I mean, clearly they haven't felt able to say to me you know actually don't use that abbreviation (laughs) you know until recently yeah until recently and so you know this is the thing it's not just having them in the room but having them feel like they truly belong and empowering them to say something um i think those are actually separate steps i actually think you know we're doing quite well at getting them in the room now or, or better at getting them in the room but we're not necessarily empowering them to speak up and that's not just for indigenous but a whole bunch of things um, you know, a whole bunch of dimensions of diversity. Um, and I think that will greatly improve surgery as a culture um, because in my experience, it's it's not for um, lack of goodwill, it's actually for just lack of you know for just not knowing.
0: Yeah that, that, that did make me wonder like with the training, you've got the this is how you should or shouldn't conduct yourself. Mm -hmm. But what about the communication aspect as well, on the other hand? So you might be having fewer complaints or they are resolved quicker, but are people feeling more, are they being trained or informed about how to be more communicative about the problems and about how to address them?
1: Yeah. We came to realize that the problem with the current system is that it's like a on off switch, you know, you either stay silent, um, and you know grumble to yourself about these things or if you want to do something it's like um, here's the complaints line or here's the hr number you have to call um or here's the you know formal portal that you put these things into and then it all becomes bigger than Ben here you know there's an investigation written statements have to be provided it's often a very bruising experience on both sides both for the recipient of the behavior and the person who's accused of having dished it out basically so what we needed was something in between um, and the in-betweeny bits is about speaking up and starting to have those narratives within your units. Um, so rather than choosing off-switch, which is stay silent, and on-switch, which is go big and make it formal, you needed that in-between. And so the Operate with Respect workshop, the one that's on hold for COVID, but the actual role-playing is about practicing what how to say, what how to bring it up. And there is actually a structure of how to do it, um, so, and, and you it ranges from just tiny things to bigger things, you know, so so sometimes it's just a look, or letting someone know that you heard, you, you know, I've mastered the, the look that you give to toddlers, you know, someone says something that's a bit off colour, and you're just sort of like, <laughs> <laughs> and that, and they know that someone else has heard and thought. You know, that's not quite on. Um, Or just moving even your body language, you know, it doesn't have to be verbal. Um, So going and standing next to someone who's just been bullied um, or coming between them and whoever's shouting at them, you know, can be quite powerful. Um, And then the speaking up, you know, sometimes it can be humorous or just, you know, or just kind of like, sorry, what did you say again? Or I didn't quite catch that. You know, um, can you say it again? Sometimes quite often they won't say it again. Um, or, Or, you know, going more than that or just saying that's not cool or right up to the point where you say you know catch up with them shortly after the fact in a private setting and say can i have a word with you about you know what just happened there or you know i heard about this that happened several days ago can we have a chat about it you know so so we teach the whole range of things from minimal right up to maximal before you get to the full-on formal report a full
0: escalation yeah Yeah.
1: because the idea is that all the evidence shows that if you do more of that in between work there's less need for the formal complaint um, because you address it in-house and there is that ongoing narrative about what's okay you know because culture is what we do what we do around here you know how things are done around here Um, and people pick that up from what they see going on around them so if they see rudeness or bullying happening unchallenged then they come to understand that that is normal and accepted whereas if they see that someone kind of goes, yeah that's not cool or you know let's refocus on the patient we can talk about that later you know something like that makes it you know starts to create that culture that the patient comes first leave your bad behavior at the door you know um yeah so that so that culture setting is really important and hopefully if we do more of that there'll be less need for the formal um complaints but also there'll be less need of the staying silent keeping your head down maneuver as well
0: yeah definitely Mm. it's good just encouraging the discourse and the engagement yeah
1: yeah well increasingly
0: too society
1: is changing around us you know so even outside of surgeons speaking up to each other um we find that year by year the proportion of complaints lodged with the College from community, from the public is increasing. And um, it shows us that, you know, if we don't get our own house in order, someone is going to put it in order for us. Um, I think the sorts of behaviors that were acceptable for surgeons 10 years ago are no longer going to be acceptable in 10 years' time, you know. So we get reports that say, you know, um, Dr. So and so was perfectly nice to me in the consulting room, but I saw the way he spoke to his secretary afterwards, you know, um, not happy, you know. Um, And that's against you know it used to be the old narrative used to be oh yes you know um terrible bedside manner but they're a good surgeon meaning a good technical surgeon but the public perception now i think societal expectation is that the surgeon is all rounded you know that they are they are a respectful person an honest decent person as well as a good technical operator Mm, definitely
0: so what got you into um, ed- the education side of things? I
1: mean, it actually started with the kids. So I had kids partway through my training. And when they started school, I thought, gosh, these classrooms are a bit different from the ones I remember. Um, you know, they just looked like a riot. Kids running around everywhere, you know, <laughs> free choice of activities, um, teacher being very in- encouraging and, and, you know, praising them for, efforts that I thought were quite mediocre you know (laughs) Um, and I thought but the kids were learning fabulously you know they were just thriving in this and I thought gosh this has changed there must be something different about the underlying theory or beliefs about it that I need to bone up on so I actually um, enrolled remotely in um, a bachelor of ed sorry bachelor of arts majoring in education and started off reading about kids you know kids primary schooling but along the way kind of thought wait why, what, why are we not applying this to surgery or any of the higher medical degrees? You know, why are the behaviours that we used to do, um, you know, abusive questioning, you know, put them on the spot and grill them until they cry, um, y- you know, um, make them feel the shame of their lack of knowledge, you know, so that they're more motivated to go away and read up about it. You know, that, that as it turns out, is a complete educational fallacy as well. Um, yeah, you know, if we've understood this for primary and secondary school students, why have we not? understood it at a post-tertiary level, you know, when it comes to higher medical training. Um, So then as you start to have these slightly odd ideas, you know, wandering around the halls of the College of Surgeons, I found a group of like-minded people, Um, you know. And so one of the first things I got drawn into was the revision of a course called uh, Surgeons as Teachers, I think it was called. Um, and it was a course that had been set up by um, two women, so Prof. Trish Davidson and Prof. Jennifer Martin, and they had set it up in 1999, and it was being revised in 2010, I think it was. Um, and as I sat around the table revising this course, you know, you just found yourself going, yes, and yes, you know, imagine if we could teach all surgeons to teach like this. Um And it was just such a liberating and, you know, I had found my tribe, essentially. Um, And I've been working, you know, with that tribe ever since. Um, and so since then, of course, we've revised that course. In fact, we're up to a second revision of it now and it's been renamed. Um, we've developed the foundation skills course, which is a one day abbreviated version of that, which everyone who takes on a surgical trainee has to do. Um, we've developed you know, leadership courses. We've developed communication course. I mean, I'm not talking about me. I'm saying we as the educational group. Um, and then, of course, the operating with respect education has flowed on quite naturally from that. Um, So it's just been such a privilege and really lovely productive if unpaid (laughs) work to be able to change, you know, to contribute to the way that education is delivered from the College of Surgeons. Um, So it's, um, it's that old principle, you know, you you do the work that you're paid for, but you also do the work that engages you. Um, And so yeah. I mean, I'm very lucky myself. You know, the surgery I do, if you start, get, get me started talking about general surgery or breast cancer, I have the same sort of <laughs> look on my face. Um, but education outside of that is kind of the portion of my time that I devote to pro bono work because it is personally meaningful to me and productive.
0: Goodness. Yeah, definitely. Just being able to see the changes that you're able to affect in the greater community for your you know, if you own field.
1: Yeah, well, it's just a different thing. You know, when I operate on a patient, of course, my focus is totally on that patient. And so for however many hours it takes, you know, two hours, four hours, six hours, eight hours, 10 hours, you you are in the service of that one patient. When you do educational work on behalf of the college, though, you're actually doing it for the good of the whole profession. You know, you know that the product you put out is going to eventually impact hundreds, if not thousands, of patients through the education of the surgeons treating them. So you know in a in a way education surgical education is sort of like the public health effort of of surgery you know it it is something that has an effect on a much wider scale than what you actually do day to day with your scalpel
0: that's yeah definitely brilliant yeah just the yeah being able to focus on both you know your patient and also everything else around it that's part of your circle yeah so what do you love about surgery? it's uh... It's the crafting of it,
1: but combined with the people-facing nature of it. So you'll remember I said I'd started off wanting to be a GP, and that's partly because I I just actually just love finding out about people. You know, I find people, the whole diversity of humankind, really diverse. Um, And so my notes are peppered with comments about things like, you know, belongs to the African Violet Society or, um, (laughs) you know, (laughs) um, or is... Um, due to take a trip of a lifetime around the Mediterranean, or, or you know, you know things like that, which aren't strictly speaking to do with their medical, you know, their medical issues, but speaks to them as a person, and to some degree probably does impact on their health. You know, because we we are doctors. Um, you know, we graduate from med school before we become surgeons, so we're all doctors, um, and we look after patients in a holistic way before we learn to pick up the scalpel, um, and so. You know, those those are just little comments that I love to put in the notes because they bring colour to the patients. You know, they make them alive for me. Um, and so, you know, um, so there's that people-facing aspect of surgery, but also the crafting of it. So anyone who's ever um, done a handicraft, um, you know, you know, fishing fly tying or wood whittling or, or needlework or anything you know the, the hours just pass by you know you, you're just doing the activity you're totally engrossing the activity and when it turns out well when you get a good product you have that sense of satisfaction you know I mean at the same by the same token if it doesn't come out well you're like and you take it all you know <laughs> do it again until it's to your satisfaction yep. you know there's that that feeling but but it's that combination and so when I first started operating it was the same thing you know, you're just so engrossed in that moment. You're thinking, you know, how shall I bring this together so it looks good, works well for the patient, fixes the original problem they turned up with. Um, When you step back from the table, it's almost like time didn't pass. You know, you step back from the table and suddenly you're aware of how hungry you are and the fact that you're (laughs) bursting and that you really ache across your shoulders, but you were almost unaware of it till that moment because you were so engrossed in it. Yeah, it's, it's almost a form of meditation. It's a strange thing to try and um, describe. Um, people say it's like being in flow. You know, flow um, is actually an educational concept. If you can, when you're teaching kids or whatever, if you can find something that gets them into the flow of things, you know, that aha moment when they when they really get into something, it's a, it's a wonderful thing to behold when you're a teacher. Um, and so I think I had that moment, you know, as a, as a surgical trainee. Um, yeah. So it's just nice to be able to do something to people and and to fix whatever it was they came in with. Um, And, of course, I did choose a hard specialty. You know, I do breast cancer. And so we can't always fix things for people. So you have to get good at the other side too. You know, sometimes no matter how many hours you slave away, you will come to recognize that the tumor cannot be fixed. Um, So sometimes you have to, you know, So you have to develop those skills where you've got to sometimes go out and and tell people bad news.
0: Because it's such a big thing to have to share, how do you develop the skills to manage the emotions that come along with that?
1: As a trainee, I I felt like I was an odd bod because the traditional way of approaching it was to be very professional. You know, um, there are lots of, um, you know, acronyms for how to, you know, how to deliver bad news, you know how to deliver bad news is a common common topic or lecture subject during medical school um and it's all very you know, make sure you have a private space, me you know follow these steps, follow the
0: steps, but, but it's all very clinical, it's
1: very clinical yeah, <laughs> and I, as you can gather, wear my heart on my sleeve, you know i I cannot help conveying the emotion um, in myself, and so I was actually criticized during my training for being too emotive Um, and of course that that comment that feedback was often given with with a fair dose of um, gender microaggression thrown into it you know don't be such a woman (laughs) (laughs) you know grow some balls ria you know (laughs) Um, but as i've become a more um, mature clinician I've found that that actually is the right way for me, and that patients do appreciate it when you show them how upset you are that you cannot, that you've tried your darndest and you can't help them, the way that you would like to. You know, patients do appreciate that. They appreciate that that I'm distressed. Um, I will accept. You know, I will admit to having had a quiet cry. Um, you know, I, I don't lose control in front of them, but the occasional tear does sneak out, and I have to reach for the tissue box. But you know often they have too. And, and, you know, and that's a very human moment. I don't think that we should hide that as a profession. Um, I don't think it takes away from our professional knowledge or our compassion or anything to show some emotion. And I'm super glad to find that times have changed to match. You know, it's the, the conversations I'm seeing in social media and also anecdotally from friends and family who have been on the patient side is that society in general would like doctors who are not professional um or rather that we've reconceptualized professionalism to not be that cold clinical sits behind the oak desk and conveys your information to you um yeah
0: because you're pe- you're humans too yeah. you're people with feelings yeah
1: yeah, yeah. so yeah so I'm, I'm i don't seem to be the odd bod
0: anymore in that regard
1: <laughs> yeah
0: Thankfully. it's good it's good to see that gradual change <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah okay so uh we might start to move on to those extra questions now oh, yes um, and I guess we will be – we sort of know where this is headed. What hobby or interest do you have that's most unrelated to your work?
1: I, I pondered this question, and I just cannot think of a decent answer because there's a lot of hobbies that I thought were unrelated. Um, but they sort of are. They sort of <laughs> are. You know, like I'm, I'm famously a crocheter and a needle worker. Um, and, uh, you know <laughs> – back when I'd only just started on Twitter, I had a tweet unexpectedly go viral when I only had a few hundred (laughs) followers, I think, because basically someone had called me out for taking my knitting to a surgical conference. Um, And (laughs) so they called me out for knitting in a surgical conference. And of course, there was this huge outpouring of response from people who were knitters and crocheters, not all of them women either, um, saying, but I actually can't concentrate if I'm not doing something with my hands. Um, And then we had wonderful comments from neurobiologists saying, that's exactly it you know this is the whole thing about tapping pins or jiggling your leg or those fidget spinner things you know people need some sort of repetitive motor thing to manage the motor overflow if you don't manage the motor overflow when you're having to sit still you're using up too much cognitive load thinking oh gosh i have to sit still to concentrate on what's going on so it actually improves your concentration to do some repetitive motor movement but arguably pen tapping and leg jiggling is much less productive in terms of making baby blankets and scarves (laughs) then yes (laughs) anyway so once upon a time I would have said that's totally unrelated to surgery that's my hobby but then the more I think about it I'm like no it's manual skills and you know the ability to manual skills is the craft um yeah yeah and to stick at one thing for hours and hours (laughs) you know getting into the flow of it (laughs) you know there are parallels to it yeah
0: definitely like it, it's it's rewarding work being able to work with your hands and being able to do that in your profession as well as in your you know out of hours time it it gives you a lot of stimulation mentally and physically yeah. to be able to yeah. see something come together yeah. so i i can understand and appreciate yeah. the love of surgery yeah. and i've spoken to another um person in medical stem who has had the same said the same thing. She said that she she loved microsurgeries because it's just being able to work with that level of detail and intricacy.
1: Yes. Yeah. And to the degree that we spend a long time teaching trainees how to stitch, you know, teaching them the mechanics of stitching, it's like, well, why don't we recognise prior learning? You you know, (laughs) people who have been doing needlework for years, you know, I do find that they pick up the principles of stitching human bodies together much more quickly because they understand, you know, how things distort or pucker, um, what we mean when there's length discrepancy between one side and the other and how to adjust it, um, you know, the principles of tension. You know, everyone knows that if you're knitting something or crocheting something, if there's too much tension, it's not going to work. You know, These these are things that we don't have to explain to people who have these skills already when they come into surgical training um and i often think you know it's a slightly cheeky thought but you know wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if we recognize that by learning you know to to understand that people with those skills are already you know well on the way to becoming a good trainee
0: Mm. yeah is that something that anyone else has kind of slipped in it's like oh if you're learning to become a surgeon you should take up some (laughs) needlework
1: I have rather cheekily a <laughs> suggestion for people of all genders, you know, approaching me to say, you know, if, if I'm interested in surgery, what can I do to prepare myself now? And I was like, well, take up some manual craft. You know, I don't really care what it is. Um, you know, I've had a trainee recently who's who was a keen fisherman and ties his own fishing flies, and he had the same dexterity oh, and nice. understanding of things like tension, neatness, precision, you, you know, how to tie knots. You know, you know, it it, it, was, it was the same sort of thing. Um, yeah, we got through that phase of training really quickly because of his prior knowledge. Yeah,
0: well, it's all that small manual detail yeah, yeah, work. Yeah. Right? It, it's something that requires the practice and the dedication to be able to get. Yeah. Right.
1: So I'm like, we, you know, we. I mean, there have been cheeky papers, actual research papers, published about you know whether <laughs> whether um, people who play video games um, would be innately better at laparoscopic surgery because um, it's that same thing where, you know, your <laughs> eyes are at the screen here, but your hands are working down here. Um, it's the same thing yeah, when you do laparoscopic or telescopic surgery. You have to train yourself not to look at the work. you're
0: you yeah, you're not looking at what your you're hands doing, move yeah.
1: separately from where your eyes are. Um, so there have been research studies showing that people who play video games might be better suited for laparoscopic surgery. And there, <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: well, they're related. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, which childhood book holds the strongest memories for you?
1: Well, there was a childhood book that I absolutely loved called The Phantom Tollbooth, Um, and it's an imaginary journey of a boy who travels through a whole bunch of different lands, you know, the land of words and the lands of numbers, and, and, you know, it's just clever, and even as an adult rereading it now, I find a lot of enjoyment in it, but it it made a lot of impact on me because it's just so imaginative and beautiful um, when I was a kid, but also, What makes it particularly special now is that it's also a a favorite of my kids. And so there's that feeling of passing on that joy in that story onto the next generations.
0: Yeah, it's great. Yeah, being able to share what you grew up with and what you loved growing up with your kids is definitely, you know, it's a good feeling. And lastly, what advice would you give someone who wants to do what you do and what advice should they ignore? (laughs)
1: Well, they should ignore anything that says, you know, you're not suited for it or, um, you know, say, so, so I have variously been told I was too small because um, I am a five foot tall, 40 kilogram Asian woman, you know, too small, <laughs> too weak, um, uh, too feminine and not feminine enough. <laughs> you know, you're like, oh, can't win. Um, um, too outspoken and not speaking up enough, uh, overconfident and underconfident. Um, You know, you know, so all of that sort of thing, it's like, well, that has no bearing on how you're going to perform as a surgeon. Um, So all of that sort of advice, just ignore. Um, But if you do want to be a good surgeon, funnily enough, my advice is, you know, you will spend hours and hours and hours of time just as part of your normal job working on the business of surgery, you know, our famously long hours, long operations, you know, you're going to spend plenty enough time on that. But... What I find about consultant surgeons, the ones who are the best, are those who have had a really broad life experience. They've travelled, they've read, they've got lots of interests, they have other hobbies, they have a wide circle of friends, not just surgeons. You know, They are honest, decent people who understand the perspectives of lots of different people. Um, and they make really good team leaders and they make really good surgeons. They appreciate the different priorities that their patients might have. Um, so I actually just tell them to go and live a little, really, you know, have a broad experience. And so they often say, oh, but I can't do that within the surgical training scheme because it, it feels it's, you know, it's so famously competitive that, you know, you've got to put your head down, you know, get your higher research degree, you know, butter up with some mentors to write your nice, um, references and work your way up the promotion ladder so that you get more and more senior towards registrarship. You know, that's how it feels. Um, so they often say there's no space for me to take time off or go traveling or whatever. And I'm like, look, you know, I took the whole of my PGY3 year off to go backpacking around the world. And everyone said it shouldn't be done. No one would give me a job when I got back. I was taking myself out of surgical selection. Um, it would be looked, you know, the gap in my CV would be looked on poorly. None of that came out to be true. Um, and the same when I had I, so uh, the first pregnancy was accidental. Um, so all of a sudden I'd fallen pregnant and um, there was some pushback from people saying, oh, you know, um, this is very inconvenient for us as a training program, very hard to work around this, you know, you sure sure is the right thing for you, blah, blah, blah. Um, but that worked out as well, you know. And, of course, I was never going to give up on my beautiful kids. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I would have much rather given up the surgery than given up on the kids. So, um, but just to say – I had to fight. You know, we we literally did not have a maternity leave policy. Um, We borrowed one rather hurriedly um, to make it work. Um, Same when I got to the breastfeeding bit. I was still breastfeeding a child when I came back to work, and and there was no provision for rooms to pump in or anywhere to prepare the bottles. Um, So we had to kind of get a little bit heavy-handed with the workplace legislation and say, you are actually legally obliged to provide this. Um, So, yeah. Yeah. Um, but it all worked out, you know, it's like, here I am a consultant surgeon, you know, part of, you know, I appreciate that it's hard enough simply becoming a surgeon. It's a long, hard path, but along the way, if you can show that other things are possible and maybe change a few policies to make it easier for people behind you to come through, then
0: that's also very worthy work. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Just have to persevere for what you want. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You know, I I have not yet met anyone who I think is unsuited to be a surgeon because when people say um, a person is unsuited for surgery, what they're saying is there is a very narrow stereotype of a surgeon. And I'm like, so rather than saying to people, this person is unsuited to surgery, how about we just say, well, how about we broaden out the stereotype then? Because we don't all have to be like each other.
0: Hmm. It's interesting. Like when you said unsuited to surgery before, I was thinking unsuited because they've got hand tremors, Because, because of things that would actually interfere with the physical work. And it hadn't occurred to me that it was about personality traits and physical traits, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, being told that you're the wrong race or the wrong gender or the wrong size, wrong personality, you know, there's this perception that you've got to be bold and brash and confident and outspoken. You know, I, you know, there are surgeons now who are very quietly spoken and are excellent surgeons, and actually the patients really appreciate their style, you know, if it if it matches their style. Um, it's about, on a market level, providing a wide, wide diversity of surgeons so that patients can have choice. You know, if they want someone who is of LGBTQI orientation to understand their particular issues, they should be able to find someone like that. You know, that's not possible at the moment. Or if they specifically want a female surgeon, well, at the moment, you've got your choice of the 13% of the fellowship that's female. (laughs) You know, it's not much choice. In a lot of centres, there are none. Um, You know, that that sort of thing. If you want someone who speaks your language um, because you're an immigrant and you're a bit worried that people won't understand your cultural requirements, you, you know, those choices should be available to the public, and we can't at the moment offer that in surgery, and we should. Yeah. I mean, the thing about, you know, hand tremors, we, we do have surgeons who have hand tremors and also when they get older, almost every surgeon has hand tremors. Um, a, surgery is not just about operating. So surgeons can contribute a lot to surgery without actually operating. You know, if they choose to become an academic or research surgeon or a teaching surgeon um, or to um, get into the administrative aspects Um you know, those people with a wealth of lived experience as a surgeon, as they get older and the hand tremors get in the way, they still have so much to give to the profession of surgery. You know, we don't capture that very well at the moment. They just sort of stop operating, and that's that. You know, we don't capture it. And that's, that's a shame, yeah. 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 But also the te- the incoming technology is going to improve things. So already in things like neurosurgery, there are technologies where if the robot is doing the surgery, the robot will self-correct for your tremors. You know, it's the same technology as in, um, motion picture, you know, movies, you know, yes. you don't get the, yep. the, the, camera camera, the that technology <laughs> adjusts for the cameraman's tremor, um, sort of like, well, that technology promises to extend the working lifespan of surgeons, for example, you know, you wouldn't have to quit at 60 or 65 just because of the tremors, um, You know, and for a specialty where famously we become consultants later than any other specialty because of the length of the training program. So it's unusual to become a a consultant surgeon, um, you know, anywhere until you're sort of early to mid 30s is fairly typical. You know, so if you're going to have to quit operating by the time you're 60, you know, you're really, you you know, the productive lifespan is very, very short compared to other specialties. And it's sort of like, well, if the technology is coming, that will allow you to extend your ability to operate on people and accommodate for the changes of aging. Why, you know, why, why, why should we put any limitations on people on, on the basis of those sorts of physical limitations? Yeah, and so not in Australia, but we do. There, 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 are surgeons around the world that have, you know, dwarfism, for example, and need to stand on a tall stool to operate. Um, we, you, you know, that that sort of thing. Um, there's been a lot of discussion about surgeons who for various reasons, lose the sight in one eye and lose stereoscopic vision, you know, through bicycle accidents or whatever, Um, they find ways to adjust as well. And so you're thinking, right, if we would accept consultant surgeons who lose their sight of one eye after they achieve consultancy, then what is actually stopping us from accepting trainees, you know? Because I'm like, look, are they driving a car? Almost always they are. If they can drive a car, surely they can drive a laparoscope. You know, because people say they've got no depth perception because of the stereoscopic vision. You're like, but if they're driving a car, they figured it out somehow. You know, it's just starting those conversations around um you know, informal conversations to, to make people reflect and think, you know, what when we think of a surgical trainee, what do we actually think of? You know, what are we looking for? Is it purely the technical aspects or do we want other aspects as well? Um and I know that I'm quite, you know, on one end of the spectrum to say we want diversity right Makes them diversity the better um but you know like i i would be so delighted if we could get a hearing impaired surgeon someone who's fluent in, in sign language um because i think there would be a, a population that would would dearly love to have a surgeon they
0: could benefit sign, sign with of course yeah and when you know, you're having to face something so invasive you want to be comfortable with the yeah. people you're working with to provide the care yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah. You know, from the point of the view of the the patient, you know, as you're lying flat on your back with your arms strapped down on the boards and, and you're hearing impaired and all you can see is lights and sounds on people's mouths moving, you know, it's like, wouldn't it be so amazing to have a surgeon who could sign sign to you as you went to sleep? You know, I, I just think that would be such a powerful patient experience. We we, As far as I know, we don't have anyone in, in the profession who can do that. And anyone who is hearing impaired who applied, I, I imagine they would get at the moment still a fair bit of you know microaggression or discrimination saying but why why would you want to do surgery are you
0: suited you know unsuited for surgery (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah definitely lots of obstacles still to overcome yeah
1: yeah and of course it's not just surgery you know those barriers exist in a lot of medical specialties but you know it's up to odd bods like me to kind of just gently question people and make them think a little harder about how we define these things
0: yeah, and it's de- yeah. Medicine is you're providing care for people, and yeah. it, there's more to it than just the actual physiological aspect.
1: Yeah, yeah. And people come in all shapes and sizes, and the doctors should too.
0: Yes, mm. definitely. It's a good way yeah. of looking at it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, thank you, Ria, for this conversation. It has been absolutely amazing to learn about surgery, what you do, and also about you know operating with respect mm-hmm. and the way that the Australian medical field is moving towards, you know, taking those things into consideration going forward. Yeah. Um, so if people would like to reach out to you, how would be, well, what would be the best way to reach out to you?
1: Yeah. So I I am a very simple surgeon. <laughs> um, <laughs> social media was a complete unknown land to me until 18 months ago, but then I can only manage one platform. So you you won't find me on Facebook or Instagram. I just cannot figure out how anyone finds the time to manage more than one platform. So I can only manage one platform that is Twitter. Um, so I am there at Liangria, very, you know, <laughs> imaginative handle, sorry, but you will find me there and just, you know, hit me up
0: um, with a tweet or a, a direct message. Um, if you want to find me, it's the easiest and quickest way. That's brilliant. Thank you so much, Rhea. And I hope somebody gets, I hope people get something out of this amazing conversation. Oh, it's been my pleasure. And
1: the more I bleat on about these things and the more people hear about these ideas, the more we can spread them around a bit.
0: Oh, most definitely. Yeah. All right then. Okay. And thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great day. I've loved speaking to Rhea about her experiences in medicine and surgery, as well as the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons Operating with Respect program. Programs like this in Australasia and around the world will require a lot of time and effort to affect a cultural shift, but by challenging the stereotypes that are also perpetuated in the media, it can only lead to better outcomes for patients, as well as a more healthy environment for those working in the area. To learn more about Rhea and what we discuss on this show, or to connect with us, please visit the Steampowered website at steampoweredshow.com. You can also reach out to Rhea on Twitter at Rhea, L-I-A-N-G-R-H-E-A. If you enjoyed this conversation and want to hear more like it, subscribe to this podcast and share this with your geeky or geek curious friends. You can also support Steam Powered on Patreon and Ko fi under Steam Powered Show, the links for which will also be in the show notes. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time.